You're listening to the Centre for International Studies and Diplomacy seminar talks. Today's topic is on Asia rising, China and India as emergent great powers. What is similar between India and China? I'll think about these three broad categories. First of all, material capabilities. This will mean, say, military power, economic power. Structural centrality. Are they making the system? Are they leading key debates and key institutions? Are they making institutions? Um, certainly China, such as, say, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. I'll then think about the impact of values on identity and then lead to some findings uh, and some data. So first of all, the aims. And these were the primary um, goals of the research. The primary things fundamentally were to enhance our understanding of these two very big powers. How do they compare? How do they interconnect? And what does that show us about the system and how the system might look in the future? Again, thinking that they are specific entities. They won't behave necessarily the way that other states um, have behaved. The other aim was this, to think about what is great power very broadly. Um, there are absolutely tons of opinions, um, lots of understandings from different viewpoints, but as a way to try and understand it better. And in particular, um, this side, this, this non-traditional aspect. So not to just think in terms of military or economic power, but again, softer power, or ways that states are now having to interact with each other in a globalised world, or having to interact with each other, say, concerning the environment, or global finance, um, all of these things. And finally, and this is probably the most critical thing for me, first of all, try and measure if they're great powers. Is this possible? But also think about who thinks they're great powers and why they think they're great powers. And finally, most critically, this last bit of them both being post-colonial entities. I use this word in the broadest sense. So we know definitively India was completely um, colonised, subjugated. But also was China at different points. Not entirely, but bits of its land were taken by the international system, given to other actors in the international system. Um, it was subjugated by the Japanese, for example. Had a whole host of unequal treaties. Um, so that's why I use um, that word. Again, though, my sense would be implying that there are different values and that these come from different experiences, um, different histories, different appreciations of the system. So on to the prisms. My major point here, though, is, is the top bit, is that there are lots of factors, and some of them are dependent upon circumstances, maybe geographical ones, some of them are dependent upon time, but we should consider all of them. So lots of analysts say you should think about economic power, military power, technological capability, access to resources, population, territory, uh, dipl diplomatic skills. You should think about internal stability and how good is the government? How many diplomats does a government have? All of these together. And my aim there was really to overcome what I would often hear as a lecturer, which would be China's just got the world's number one uh, ranking in terms of the economy, so China's going to rule the world. I think it's a bit more um, complex, is my kind of starting point. And then beyond that, just the prisms that I mentioned before. Understand that different factors are interconnected. Um, say if you amass economic power, you can buy more military power, for example. Maybe you can leverage against other states in different ways. So try to create something that's a bit more um, complex, hopefully maybe sophisticated. But also this synergistic aspect the different bits interplay with each other um, constantly. And it depends which situation in you're in where the, the different interplay happens. Also is critical here of perception. Primarily this in terms of recognition. Do others recognise you as great? So most of us probably think, I would guess, that say India is in a worse position than China. Maybe it can't be considered great. But American presidents have turned up in India spoken in the Indian Parliament says India is great, India has risen. What is the basis of that um, perception? Why are they giving over um, recognition? What legitimacy um, does that give? And that's maybe something that existing great powers can do. They're gatekeepers. 
and they can bring states back into the international system. Um, America did that, say, with China, 1972, Shanghai Communique, the same with India after the 1998 nuclear test. Finally, the other two factors. Our definition should evolve. It does evolve. Um, Behaviours evolve, conditions evolve, structure evolves. We weren't always living in a globalised world, so can we use old references to use um, to measure a great power now, for example? And finally, just the commonality. If maybe there's a commonality in terms of how India and China think, what will this mean about great powers? And beyond that, how does that help explain their rises, say, concerning past rises? Uh, will it, be, uh, will it engender, uh, endanger the system, for example? That's what people will think about China. Um, or will they be welcomed in uh, more peacefully? So moving on from this, there were these three broad areas that I thought about and which I've applied um, in the book in different ways. First of all, the really kind of very traditional measures, thinking about material capabilities, primarily to achieve the top goal, which is really the aim of any leader. Achieve sovereignty, protect your state against any kind of threat. Have self-sufficiency and absolute independence. Do not be pushed around by others, essentially. Do not be uh, under the thumb of others. It can be one measure of a great power to some degree. On top of that, as Kaplan states there, protect national values. Protect what is specific to the Chinese mindset, if we can talk about that elite mindset, the Indian mindset. Protect it from external um, influences. From that, and again very traditionally, <coughs> most measures thought about this in military terms. Most analysts um, in this kind of school would say if you had 10% of the capabilities, for example, you would be a great power. Or they would just think about the size of an army relative to another army, the number of tanks, the number of aircraft, all of these kinds of things. And much of this is to do with the system being dominated by war. That this has been one major way that states have interacted with each other. I would say at, le at least up until the Second World War, on a, on a major scale. And it's for that reason, as Levy states there, it's all about these relative levels. State A has a million troops, state B has two million. There's an imbalance which implies that state B is stronger. And in that sense, all of this is some kind of a hierarchy. The more you have of something, the higher up you are, the more China should be um, a great power. This points to other elements, um, some kind of spatial element, which I think was true in the past but is less true now. But states would invade each other with their armies. That's why they have them. Protect themselves, but also gain resources, gain um, territory. Also, it can give you a global um, dimension. Think of, say, American power is used globally to control American interests. It's also highly relational. I would argue that all of these factors are highly relational. It's about an, an exchange, and they're interconnected. The other big material factor would be the industrial side of things, which really underpins or is maybe at the fulcrum, I would say, of great power to some degree. But what can you um, produce? What can you make? How can you use the manpower um, from your population? How advanced are you? On top of that, probably the key point here is, is that this is extremely convertible, as I've mentioned before. You can buy better capabilities. You can buy diplomatic influence. You can promise another side aid, for example. You can promise investment. Highly translatable and has a high degree um, of leverage, as I've mentioned there. On top of that, too, it's also about controlling the resources. So in the past, as I mentioned, states would invade each other to get the resources. Now it's much more a case of states buying the resources. Both India and China, for example, have bought up land in other countries for the resources. Uh, they demand the resources in different ways. Note here again that this connects to, say, military power. You're worried about piracy. You need an unlimited supply of oil and gas. You will try and protect that um, through trade routes through amassing uh, commensurate military power in different ways. It's also about different <coughs> stages. Um, so I've mentioned here levels of invention or innovation um, as well. What's the kind of intellectual 
um, calibre of a state in a different way. Finally, and leading on to the next slide, is really the bottom point here that in the current system, which is dominated by economics, it's the very richest states that have the largest state more often than not. So they'll be the ones that are maybe pushed out into the system, the ones that need to influence the system. Again, if you're an elite in China or India, your primary concern with the economy will be, how do I fuel the economy? Where do I get energy from? It forces you to go and find that energy, forces you to open up relations often with any state. In your trial, for example, you've got no problem, say, dealing with pariah states, as long as they can provide energy. Take the resources that you can, trade as much as you can, and that makes them influential within the system. And again, makes it quite hierarchical. Those with more have more influence, it kind of blossoms, the effect um, blossoms in different ways. Beyond that, you can say that this links to other factors, and this is a kind of conversion. This is what I mean here by <coughs> this um, structural centrality, or for the first point, system determining, or the second point being a structural power. Of being of such importance to the wider system that you are key to how that system functions. So, for example, China, with all of its neighbours, for all of those neighbours, I think, almost without exception, except for maybe Afghanistan, their top export market is China. Often their top import market is China. So from this sense, if China fails, all their trade will fail in terms of that dominant um, position, that dominant partnership. Equally, values that these states have can also influence the system. Think of, say, more Western values concerning liberal trade, neoliberalism, democracy promotion. All flow from certain powers dominating the system and began to push those values outwards um, into the system. And this is what White means up here when he says uh, powers with general interest. By general, he means global. That they're able to um, shape again as Beasley notes there, the parameters of how the international system works through that um, structural position. On top of that too, for some analysts, but not all of them, but this is something that we can think about for India and China, Buzan also states that they're the great responsibles. So they're the ones who have to maybe step up in terms of international crisis. And this has happened on multiple occasions um, in international affairs. Think of any world wars, for example. Any major calamity involves the big powers stepping forward and taking responsibility um, for the world to some degree. But also suggests that they have an influence beyond um, the kind of material influence. There's a kind of expectation that they should be um, responsible. Expectation that they should manage uh, the global commerce. I would suggest here that that's uncertain whether China and India will maybe want to do that. But again note, though, that this is an understanding of how a great power ought to be. They ought to be responsible. They ought to be um, having this wider um, concern. So beyond that, <coughs> as strange states here, we can think of them as structural powers in this essentialness, that they are making the system, they're determining the structure, they're determining how things work, um, how things will play out. And again, think of, say, negotiations, say, concerning climate. The very biggest powers are the ones who are key to those negotiations working, key to how the final agreements will be worded, key in terms of framing those understandings um, to the world. And that's what I mean here, that they can determine certain values um, and understandings. And these can change. Um, so, for example, President Xi in China... Uh, the other month said, for example, that China's model of growth can be attracted to authoritarian powers. This is directly different than what, say, an American leader would normally say. We'll promote democracy. The system should have democracy. And I think that these values can be con continually contested, but will be dependent upon who is more powerful, who, who maybe wants to influence the system. We can also think structurally in terms of what Bisley says in terms of just managing the system. Who makes the institutions? Who runs the institutions? Who determines the dominant understandings within those institutions? 
do those institutions effectively maybe represent those who are most powerful? Good example here, for example, is uh, the IMF. Very useful, say, from the United States point of view for a long time. They made that grouping. They determined the voting shares within that grouping for different powers. And that worked for a long time. But say China and India, they're now more interested in, say, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, where the voting shares are very much different. If you're China in the latter institution, you have a 26% share of the vote, versus, say, I think it's 5 or 6% in the IMF. My point here is, is that those institutions reflect power at different points, but also that they can change um, and gestate. Also here is some kind of element of proactiveness that states can take roles for themselves. So think of the United Nations, those states, the five states who have a veto power. Those states are in such a position that they are able to say, we imagine the world being like this, we think the rules will be like this, and then we're just going to give ourselves this huge privilege, because we can at that one point. That's the role taking uh, for the kind of self-image, that's what I mean there. But then it's also about role giving. Um, you will do particular things. So think of, say, nuclear non-proliferation treaty. That's the big nuclear power saying, we've got nuclear weapons, and now we think that nobody else should have them from this date onwards. That's giving a particular role. And again, is a kind of ordering um, understanding. What's of note here with the structural side of things is that it really combines the material and ideational side. By ideational, I just mean identity, values, um, intangible things, things you can't really measure. But it is dependent upon how a state views the world um, and their values and identities. And that's the third bit for me here. Before that, I didn't know where to put it on the slides, but these are just the other factors that I thought about. Population, where you are geographically, territorially, all of these kinds of things. But I think that these things can affect your outlook. So many analysts would say, oh, you should be able to um, control your periphery. Because if you can control your periphery, then you can have a global reach or a global scope. Most of those analysts come from the United States, where the United States doesn't really have to worry about its neighbours. It's only got two neighbours. So it's very easy for it to dominate its periphery. Compare this, say, with India. It's, it's surrounded by very unstable states. Very different states politically, hard to control them. Think of China, it's got more neighbours than any other state within the international system. Maybe that will determine how they look at the world. It make them think more about their local security rather than having this global um, kind of edge. And the other supportive attributes were just things, other things I mentioned, just kind of ruling ability. How competent are the leaders? Um, what clarity is there in different ways? But on top of that, and this is the big thing for me in this book, was the values and identity, and in terms of self-image and general perception. Is there a desire amongst the elites for their country to be great? Not necessarily just the nationalistic, we're fantastic and better than others, but actually wanting that stature. And this is very true for Indian elites and Chinese elites over the last 60 to 70 years. Repeated calls of India will be a great power, it's India's destiny, it's India's due, we will get to that position. China, we were a great power, we will refine that, we will rejuvenate, we will transform ourselves back to that stature. And for me, that's certainly an elite belief, if shared widely enough amongst policymakers, it's an outlook and it's also some kind of eager for the state, of how it would like to be. And I think that this quote here from Donke is very useful in this regard, that Great power is a behaviour. To be a great power is to act like a great power. And this is where recognition also comes from. Harrell's point that it's a social category. You start to look like a great power, maybe you are understood as a great power. And this is interesting for rising powers. Do they try to look like existing great powers? Do they say, for example, need an aircraft carrier? Either of them. Maybe they don't, but other great powers have aircraft carriers. Certainly for India, one reason why they gained nuclear weapons was some symbolic value. A great power has nuclear weapons, so we should have nuclear weapons. That builds some kind of commonality. Again, can help with recognition 
And if it's shared, it can lead to uh, legitimacy um, in much the same way that we would say make friends. That you need some kind of linkage uh, that binds you together. And for me, this leads to this point here that images and perceptions, regardless of whether it's actual or imagined, are highly important. So I mentioned before, say, about military power. We can look at, say, some capability and view it negatively once or view it positively. And I think it's the same for great powers to some degree. If we want to believe that there'll be a great power, in many senses they might well become a great power, if enough of us believe it. And say, think, say, of threats towards states which are often quite nebulous and unclear, again built upon um, belief. The final point there is just that the soft power kind of thing from Nye also links to this as well, this kind of aspiration. Um, do you want to be like that power? Is there something that you see that you would like um, to share in a different way? So that, that's what I thought I would do. And then I came to some um, findings which I will share with you, some of which are slides and some of which um, are data. First of all, the first slide. By looking at these different factors, and if you were to look at the book, I go through them one by one. And the first chapter is about, say, domestic determinants. What's the political system like? How big is the population? How many, what diplomatic capabilities are there? There's another chapter about um, strategy, strategic culture. How do these states look at the world? Is there a consistent viewpoint in terms of what they want? I mentioned that they both consistently want to be a great power, for example. They both consistently believe in a multipolar system, consistently believe in non-interference, non-aggression in international affairs, for example. Other chapters then think about military power, economic power, uh, regional power, is their periphery stable, then institutions, and then how they deal uh, with the United States as the current hegemon. My first finding was that all of these things are completely interconnected. You can't just say it's just one measure. They're all implying, they're all helping each other in different ways. Maybe you gain leverage um, in a multilateral institution. This helps your image. This helps project your image as some kind of a brand. Maybe that helps you do um, some kind of economic activity somewhere. Maybe leads to some closer military ties. All of, all, they're all very close. On top of that, that international relations is highly interactional and highly relative. There is something happening between states. I don't believe that all states are the same in a kind of realist way, that they're just black boxes, just responding as the way the structure wants them to respond. I think states want particular things, they behave in particular ways, and the understandings that they come to, including great power, comes from that interaction. And on top of that, it's definitely relative. Some have more, some have less. Um, I can mention any small state in the international system. I don't know, Chad, Gambia. Would they be a great power, for example? On most measures, they wouldn't because of that relative um, kind of difference. On top of that, I also thought that history is important, recognition is important, but also here, this volition and intent states wanting to be great, believing that it's part of their um, destiny. And that's why I reiterate here that self-image, ego, desire, ambition are all very important things for driving um, states forward. And often there can be a disconnect. I certainly say in the Indian case, when you often speak to Indian elites, there's the clear idea, the aspiration to be great, but if you were to measure it materially, it would seem to be quite um, far behind. But overall, I think it's the perception of the material factors that matters the most. Again, China's got the highest economic growth, therefore they rule the world. That's a highly simplistic kind of soothsaying into the future. But that's a dominant understanding, a perception that if you've got enough economic power, then that's what will happen. Never mind thinking that China's population is four times that of the United States. So that means relatively... Um, standards of living are a quarter less, or that these states are merely developing rather than being um, developed. 
But regardless, it gets this understanding from Cox that ideas and material capabilities are bound together. How we perceive or put a value on something um, influences how we um, look at it and understand it. What, whilst I think that this is broadly accurate from this book, um, there is also some data to some degree, uh, which I only use to show really um, trajectory. So first of all, I imagine that this is slightly small. This is a table just to show average annual GDP growth from the 1960s up until 2015. The reason I show this is just to show the difference in between China's and India's experience relative themselves, but also relative to all the other states. So the big reason why we talk about China is because of these figures. Average 10% growth in the 80s, 90s, 2000s is unprecedented for any major huge state within the international system. That is why they are rising, because those figures are much higher than any Western state. France averages around 2%, 1%. The UK, 2 to 2.5%. United States, 3 to 2% over the same kind of period. Again, pointing to something relative. These states are rising like this, but China's gone off like that. India, a similar trajectory in a way. Accelerating growth and now even exceeding China, if you take the 2015 figure. Again, though, incrementally rising, but rising more rapidly. So gaining more um, year on year. Also, my final point for this slide is, is that lots has been made about China's growth has dropped, which it definitely has. It's no longer 10%, it's maybe 6 or 7%. And often this is taken as a sign that China is um, stalling. Maybe China won't be great. But in terms of literal dollar growth, growing at 6 to 7% is the same as what China was growing at in dollars two years ago. China is so huge that 6 or 7% is still a gigantic figure. And this is this kind of magnifying um, factor, um, year on year or decade on decade. Thinking about this slightly differently, this table just shows the amassing of economic power over a long period from the 60s up until 2015. My point here was again for us to try and be slightly more nuanced to think about those states which are developed and those which are developing. So the biggest figures are, say, the US and the EU, 390, 367 trillion, suggesting very deep economic power, very well established um, economic power over that time period. Other major states that we should consider, Japan could be a, ca uh, a candidate great power, for example. In terms of overall amassing of power, Germany is quite similar uh, to China in terms of figures. But apart from that, we can think of a broader hierarchy. China has definitely overtaken France for, in this kind of a measure, overtaken the UK, for example, similar to Germany. And probably the most interesting thing here is that India is quite far behind all of them. And again, we should be careful in terms of these comparisons. I think that power is acquired um, over time. My suggestion would be that if we were here in 20 years, India would have, I think, would have be overtaking the other states. They would be approaching that kind of um, top tier. A couple of others for different reasons. Uh, military expenditure. I use this primarily to show why many states are worried about China. I'll throw in some caveats after that. Let's say China's military expenditure has been kind of tripling from this stage, more than doubles, uh, really will double again um, for this decade. A concern about that um, translation of power in different ways. You can see that China's, India's is also growing one and a half times, again maybe one and a half times, another one and a half times, and slowly overtaking um, other states. Still note though, on the overall measure, India is quite far behind, but China has overtaken most states apart from the United States. The caveats I've thrown here are, is that this is only important if we think that military power is important. 
And it's quite clear from this chart that one state in particular thinks that military power is very important, the United States. Most understandings say realist understandings, that the world is an anarchy, you need to be number one, you need to be the hegemon, emanate from the United States. And I would suggest that this is a perception upon what is the most useful kind of power within the international system. Now, if that belief continues, then I think the idea that China is a threat will also continue. But again, we should think that if you use a different measure, you'd maybe get to a different conclusion. I'm not saying that one is right or one is uh, wrong, but I'm just pointing out that it depends how we look at these um, things in different ways. Finally, a slide which is maybe the uh, more positive side for India, and this is to do with um, demographics. The takeaway points here are is that India's population not only is growing much quicker than these other states or groupings of states, it's much younger, so it's estimated that Maybe a quarter of all individuals under 24, I think, in the next decade will be from India, for example. Potentially have a much larger workforce. Their population is younger overall. China's is getting older and older. And also because China has the one-child policy, many analysts think that China's growth will actually flatline, maybe 10, 15 years. It won't have the means, maybe, um, to keep going to the same degree. And maybe that's where India uh, would come in. Again, though, we should be nuanced because it's all well and good having a very large population, but you need to pay for it. You need to educate it. Uh, you need to give it benefits, all of these kinds of things. But suggest something more um, positive uh, for India to some degree. So, finally, uh, the big findings, as it were. First of all, I think that China and India are definitively rising. That's definitely happening. They're amassing more power relative to others. And if we are thinking about them ascending certain um, measures in different ways, some of which we can clearly measure, some of them we can't, they are rising up the international hierarchy. You could measure this economically. There are caveats there as well. Militarily, institutionally, even ideation. China's much more in the public consciousness than it used to be. India's much more in the public consciousness than it used to be. From this, I would broadly say that China is already great to some degree, and India maybe appears to be more nascent. The only reason I come to this conclusion is because of what I showed you on the previous slides, that China seems to have acquired more power, placing it relatively above um, those other states. The big thing here, though, is how do you measure or which one is more um, important. But that's my kind of feeling over the last 60 years. For India, and not wanting to predict, maybe roughly around 2030, 2035, they might be at a similar level that China is at now. Again, though, it's all relative. We don't know what might happen, what shocks might come, what might occur in the system, what conflicts might occur, so on and so forth. But as a kind of, if trajectories were to keep going, uh, kind of conclusion. That stated, I still think the overarching element is this, though. That it's a belief in these powers becoming great, which will make them great. Potentially from their own leaders, but more broadly through the whole system. If enough powers, say, need India for whatever reason, balance against China, potentially, be some kind of democratic foil within Asia, they can be believed to be great. That trajectory can become um, real, regardless of any kind of deficiencies, whether, whether those are material or ideation. And I think fundamentally that points to perceptions, or at least how we want to understand um, different measures. And that's where I'd like to um, end. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'll abuse my, my position as a chair to kind of give the first question. You, know, you mentioned, uh, Chris, about all these various kind of indicators, these factors that leads a country to become a great power. Mm -hmm. and you used you know, the example of China and India to do so. My question would be, and kind of taking this a bit further on your fi final point of, you know, great power is a great power if other powers, especially established great powers, 
accept them to be a great prop, right? Now that's where the subjectivity to my mind comes in. In the 1990s, I mean, India was at a different phase than it is today, as, uh, admittedly so. But uh, there was always this, this no, you know, the, the India has always had this sense of being a revisionist part at a global level, if, even if it's a status quo entity within South Asia. It wants to re retain its, its borders. It is not vying for more territory with any of its neighbors, not at least anymore. Uh, today, let's say something that India does actually goes against the grain of you know a responsible country mm -hmm. as seen by the wide international community let's say for example let's say tomorrow the leaders say we are going to test another nuclear weapon you know we are not satisfied with the results of 1998 you're going to go for another one would that impact the status that india has built about itself the narrative it has built around itself of being a responsible and perhaps even a nascent great power just because it has gone against what many in the international community today would say it's taboo. Um, I think at this stage it would do. Yeah. Then again, the counterfactual is that they did do that in the past. That in 1998, they were outside of the broad kind of mainstream. So they felt that that was necessary to kind of punch their way through. But now, the narrative coming from India is, is that they're a responsible nuclear power. They have a no first use policy. They're against testing. They want their pro-nuclear disarmament. And I think that those elements have become more important and the image of India has become more important than where it was before. I think one useful way of maybe thinking about these different powers is that they can be, a, they're kind of the menu and you can use them hierarchically. And in certain situations, it might be more useful to kind of like order your soft power, as it were, and in another element, you order your kind of your hard power. So if India's threatened, say, territorially, then maybe it uses its um, military power as it does done, say, surgical strikes against Pakistan. But in another environment, maybe it uses its diplomatic means. So it's, it's more kind of a menu. But it also points that it's situation-specific and time-specific in different ways, I would say. floor is now open. If I could request you to introduce yourself, that would be great. Thank you so much for your talk. Uh, as you mentioned at the very beginning of this you said in the first chapter of your book, you talked about the domestic like, situations, both in China and in India. And I was wondering, I mean, in talking about the international system, we only talk about like how the sovereign states can uh, interact or behave in the international like, stage. But my question is, how the domestic politics like affect like the states um, diplomatic or foreign policies in the international system? So from my standpoint, it would be that these states have identities that are dependent upon their historical experiences in much the same way that we, we're all not the same. We can maybe experience the same event, but our characteristics, our precedents would make us maybe respond differently to those kinds of events. I think for both of these states, how they've been treated by the international system is a huge component. So I've mentioned that they want to restore their status to how it was before. So it's very interesting, both of these states, say 1700, well, 1700s is maybe the best example. China controls a, a third of world trade, India controls a quarter of world trade. This is a major part of narratives, nationalist narratives in both countries, that these things need to be um, restored. In an Indian context, this is one reason why they're firmly non-aligned, firmly believed in non-violence. Uh, in the current system, they're also non-interventionists, which might be a problem if they ever do become a great power, because what happens if there's a conflict somewhere where they're meant to be uh, responsible? And similarly for China, other understandings say have led to the rise of the Communist Party. Century of humiliation is a huge narrative within China that China's status was debased. From that, China's anti-imperialistic, anti-Western, for example. So I think that though those understandings can lead to particular values, understandings of how the world should be, and those are those are influential amongst elites. They, that will frame how they understand the world and what they want from the world. Um, so from that viewpoint, I think very important. Does that answer what you are? Okay. Let's say both of these states aren't developed. Are developing. Both of these states, their leaders say we need to modernise. 
and we need to develop. We need to help the population, pull people out of poverty, have better infrastructure, have better spending. What would drive that in terms of foreign policy is, let's find new markets. Let's make ourselves open to trade. Let's find those like new sources of energy. Let's find as many commodities as we, as we can to boost production, boost jobs, boost earning, boost investment. So I think that those two sides are intimately connected. And then any side product from that also helps. Um, if China looks better in an international forum, gains respect from others, then maybe that can help diplomatic relations, which maybe can finesse closer economic relations, which then maybe finesse greater growth for the population um, internally. I mean, I, I would say for both these states, really, their foreign policy is domestic policy. They're both about strengthening the states internally, but doing it in such a way that protects them, that they don't just become kind of overtaken uh, by the system, that they remain true to what they want, as it were. Uh, hi, I'm Dan, I'm ISD here. My main area of interest is, is more Africa. Um, I wondered if, I've uh, two questions really. Do you ever think with China and India um, being in competition for scarce resources that they'll come into any kind of conflict, mm -hmm. whether economically or um, violently? Um, and how do their two countries' different attitudes towards, um, especially Africa, um, reflect kind of where they are or where their intentions are? Okay, um, first bit. At some point, I think so. I mean, it depends. If we keep still being focused upon oil and gas, then those resources are dwindling, and certainly there's competition already. One interesting thing is that sometimes they actually work together. Sometimes they put in joint bids on oil uh, fields, for example, but normally competition. That stated, though, certainly China are producing millions of solar arrays, lots of wind turbines. It's possible that that might alleviate the chance of um, conflict. I think the question about attitude is very interesting and maybe reveals more actually. So the kind of, this is a broad generalization and I'm sure that you know more because like, Africa's not my direct area. But the kind of Western approach has normally been, uh, we'd like resource X and when we take resource X, we're gonna suggest that you have this political system and maybe this religion and maybe this ideology. The Chinese approach is much more, we just like X, and we'll pay you Y. Um, there was a PhD student up at St Andrews whose opening premise for his PhD was, China must surely have a different foreign policy to these five states in West Africa. His conclusion was, actually it's just the same policy, which is what I just said to you. <laughs> which is, we need these resources, we'll pay for them, which, that's what we'll do. Very transactional, and very honest. Sure, like infrastructure is made, which may be inf maybe is more useful for China than maybe the indigenous population, that's open to debate to some degree, but certainly none of the ideological kind of trimmings. India is very similar, so that's why I mentioned earlier that both of these states have got no problems going to, say, pariah states and doing a deal on oil in a way that Western states are quite hampered, actually. The difference with India will be is that they will try and train up the population to be a bit more self-sufficient. So there's more of a development kind of an angle, uh, which is clearer. So it's not just about everybody makes money, but also about skills. So that's the kind of difference. But the big thing to note there is that those approaches are fundamentally different than Western approaches. And that's that kind of clashing of values and identities. And I would suggest that as India and China become more influential, those viewpoints can become more influential. And they might be more persuasive or more um, valued by certain states in Africa or other regions. Um, you mentioned in one of your answers that um, domestic policy is their foreign policy. So on that line, um, if both of them are vying to be great states, how do you think China and India perceive one another? And also um, their relationship with the United Kingdom. How, how do you think the relationship is between China and the UK and India and the UK? Okay. Um, I mean, I think the Indian perception of China is, is that sometimes they're quite worried, primarily because of historical reasons, such as the 1962 war, where they lost very badly um, to China. And some fear deep down, but I think that's because that was a major trauma, that that could reoccur but also some sense of wanting to be like China, 
becomes developed as China, and that they will both be partners somehow in the Asian century. The Chinese, this, these are broad generalizations, but kind of Beijing's perception of New Delhi is much more, they don't really see them as a competitor. Mm -hmm. that, that they're much more ahead, further ahead. There might come some time where they, they can be partners, and they, they are partners now to some degree, but in terms of that kind of threat, they don't really see that happening. But they could both be um, Asian, dominant Asian actors. For the UK, really, I think really just some trade. That's about it. Mm. And I would say that the UK's <coughs> current predicament really re reduces the position of the UK in their diplomacy. So certainly from Indian and the Chinese perspective, it was useful that the UK was within the EU because it gave another way of entering the EU and kind of a different kind of point of contact and leverage. But now I think that the UK is just one of many. So that kind of exceptionalism has, has dropped in. Yeah. And I would suspect it will keep dropping. Um, just on the 1962 war, um, I understand that the dominant Indian narrative is that China started it and like backstabbed India. But is that actually accurate? <laughs> so first of all, the border is completely unclear. Yeah. Nobody knows where the border is. I think both sides were making incursions, and both sides responded to the incursions. And sometimes forcefully, I would say definitely on the Indian side. In terms of the stabbing in the back, I don't think it's stabbing in the back, I think it's stabbing in the front. <laughs> because India was completely humiliated that they lacked the military resources. Nehru, he fundamentally believed that peace was the way forward in international relations. He didn't really need military means. And for China, actually maybe going back to this question here, in some senses it became more like a punishment. Like, look, we can do that. And then because they retreated. But it's also about, um, China believes that that area of India is part of China. They believe it's southern Tibet. And, that, and that's the difference in their kind of perceptions about their extent. But there are differing perceptions, for sure. But I would say that both states had a role to play. I can just add to that, uh, if I may. Uh, that, that debate is far from settled. If you, ask, if, you, if you ask, in fact, especially for the Indians. Okay. Uh, you're right, the Indian narrative is very strongly that it's, it's the Chinese betrayal. Not just yeah. the betrayal, it's simple intransigence. And if you look at the Chinese narrative, it's the Indians who were Nehru's forward policy. Nehru had started building all these forward posts, uh, which China saw as part of Chinese territory being infiltrated, slowly crept into by the Indians. So I think uh, a good kind of Chinese perspective on the situation, I, I mean, a perspective sympathetic to the Chinese versions is by Australian journalist, I think, Neville Maxwell, China's India War. But in fact, I was just having a word with Chris that there is a repositite coming to that book in January 2018 by a Swedish journalist who was writing India's China War using the same <laughs> sources that, was used, that were used by Nadine Maxwell and interpreting them in a, in a different way. So, so, so I, I, just to reiterate Chris's point that you know, it's, it's both ways and it's, very, it's far, far from settled that way. Uh, uh, Chris, I, I'm Peter, I'm studying here at SARS, but I was interested in your opinions on long game in terms of China and resource um, annexation might be a good word, and strategic commodities. And it seems to me that the Chinese are, are playing a long game. They're engaging with um, least developed countries. They're looking for opportunities. And that probably the Indians don't sort of exhibit the same sort of traits. And I wondered whether, well, I wonder what your opinion was. Actually. Um, I mean, there is a long game. For sure. So CCP narratives are that this will take maybe another 60 years. That that's the, that's the project to achieve communism. Now we can debate about whether that can really happen. Are they really communists? Are they really capitalists? But there is that long-term view. And there, I think in some sense it's, it's useful to be an authoritarian regime. So the party can just keep thinking about how it's going to achieve that goal, whereas democratic regimes are often a bit hamstrung mm -hmm. because they need to think about the next election so on and so forth. Definitely, Beijing understands that they need resources. But I also think the world understands that Beijing needs resources. So any country that's got any resources is very happy for China to have it. And this is why there's that analogy about if China catches a 
China coughs the world, catches a cold, because China's just using so many of the resources. However, I do think they're being much more instrumental in terms of guaranteeing where they're getting them from. So I used the example before about land acquisition. Chinese companies have bought up swathes of land in the African continent to produce food in particular. Even though they're meant to be against non-interference, non-intervention, but they live in, we live in a globalised world. In the globalised world, you could say that there's, there's a kind of economic war. It's just done on a different level. Um, so I think that side of things is definitely happening. The biggest concern I would have with all of this, though, is that, again, the long-term view is, is that we could walk out of here quite easily and just say, well, they'll just become great powers. I think there are huge obstacles down the road. One big obstacle that China's currently hitting is environmental degradation. That it is, it's destroyed its natural resources. So 90% of all water in China is, is utterly destroyed, for example. A third of all arable land is destroyed. A million people a year die because of air pollution. So I think that this is actually something that the party needs to start doing more about, and that's why they are, say, investing more in solar panels, more in wind turbines. They produce way more of this um, than other states. And I think that that might actually start to temper their behaviour abroad. That that might reduce this sense of China's just grabbing and grabbing and grabbing. For the Indian side of things, a common observation with India is that their strategy is very disconnected. It doesn't have that kind of first principles thing that I mentioned before, that Chinese mission goes to an African state and they say, we just want that. There's never, that, there's never this exact kind of joined upness. And also, China just uses its resources. It's got the leverage, it's got enough foreign exchange reserves that it can get what it wants um, a lot quicker. But in terms of a, a long-term plan, yeah, I think they want as much as they can from any source that they can. They want to diversify, but they also need stability. And that's, to, that's my final point, same with the environment. Now, most rioting that happens in China, or what Chinese elites call mass incidents, which is a technical definition, which means 100 people rioting and destroying government or corporate property. There's a, I think there's nearly 200,000 of those a year, according to official figures. And most of those are now to do with the environment. And that, that is a huge figure. I mean, that's 600 a day. And that's the government figure. That doesn't include smaller rioting. And that is a huge issue for the, the CCP, because the, the, the party always says, we're the custodians. We're the guarantors of the dream. But if that's the dream where you can't breathe, um, that might not be a dream that the population wants. So I think that's why the diversification is I have one question um, about uh, well, both China and India and also to Africa, actually. Um, well, I, I know you mentioned that Africa is not exactly your uh, area of expertise, but I'm just very curious. You mentioned that um, with China's in interest in Africa going there and, and doing partnerships with a lot of countries, yet there's an issue with them. A lot of their construction companies, for, for example, they don't hire uh, localized uh, labor. They bring in um, a lot of Chinese to, to work in those, uh, construction, mm -hmm. those companies or other you mentioned India, on the other hand, has a more of a capacity building uh, outlook towards their partnership in Africa. Um, can you give some examples of where, uh, or, or what kind of you know, partnerships India has done in Africa where they've been helping build from the ground up? Um, I, can't think of, I can't think of specific countries offhand, but the partnerships will be try and uh, use local workforces, train the local workforce, but then also do other things such as uh, train the bureaucrats, train the officials. I think most of it happens more in the East Coast because that's really the sphere of influence for India in terms of the Indian Ocean region. Do you think that's going to change the perception of, of, of the, the two countries? But for example, like China has a, well, Africa has a very specific perception towards China and a lot of the countries are seen as a kind of a helping hand. But at the same time, there's a lot of strikes and, and issues since they're not hiring from within. Would India maybe one day surpass their, you know, the positive outlook in Africa? I think it can serve as a good soft power resource, for sure. And again, there's that understanding that China, as much as it says it's anti-imperialist, is really behaving neo-imperially <coughs> by, just, by just taking that. I would say, though, that the weather can change. So I think there was a long time that a lot of states were quite happy that another state was coming and getting their resources and paying them for it. 
And the same thing could potentially happen to um, India. So India also suffers from problems with pollution. These problems may well be exported to these countries in terms of their wider practices. And again, perceptions can be quite fickle. If something, say, happens amongst the local population, uh, say, with the Indian diaspora, that could affect the perception. But I think at the moment, yeah, you're right, the perception of China is very negative. Um, again, though, I think we should be quite balanced because we live in a globalised age. If we'd have a globalisation, say, Britain was or other Western states were being imperialists, the perception of them would have been highly negative. But we, li but we live in a different uh, kind of world. So I think we should be quite careful about the, kind of the judgment side. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think there's a difference. Uh, we, we're also really lucky to have Simona, who's coming out with a book on India and Africa. So Simona, if I, on, on that particular question, yeah. before you yeah. open and uh, comment, yeah. Um, I've worked uh, recently um, with a colleague in Ghana, and I think one of, you know, just to add on to what Chris is saying, um, at the moment India is, is enjoying kind of flying under the radar. Mm -hmm. So whenever we went to, you know, had interviews, and we asked what, oh, India, um, you know, even just asking what do you think of India's partnership uh, in Ghana, people were like, what, India? Mm -hmm. Oh, but, but China, China was always coming up, and it was always brought as an example of corruption, of how not to do things, of... Uh, things that have gone wrong of, uh, um, I don't know, like, um, yeah, in development things that, you know, the roads or whatever, they have not been built properly or bring in local uh, workforces from, from China. So I think India has, in terms of perception, which I really like that, you know, the aspect of your argument, uh, India is in kind of enjoying um, a better perception in, Afri in certain parts of Africa, but there is also and I, I like as well the, the weather can change because I don't know if you're aware, but in, in India there have been several attacks on African students and African mm -hmm. nationals. Yes. Um, physical attacks. So some students have been beaten up, some have been killed, and these have had strong repercussions back in Africa. And recently at the University of Accra in Ghana, uh, India had uh, uh, given us a present in a study of Gandhi. And the students of uh, the University of Lagoon in, in Accra, they had they wanted the statue down because Gandhi, according to some recent publication, was in fact a racist and made some racist comment against black African Southerners when he was in South Africa. So India, in this sense, became a racist kind of imperial power online of China. So you know, perception do shift. Quite a lot. Simona, just just to you know push this th issue, and it is connected to what Chris said. For India, the, the, as it's you know it's it demonstrates its capability as a power also by using UN as a tool and giving sending a lot of troops uh, for UN peacekeeping mm -hmm. missions. Mm -hmm. That in fact it has been a big, and Africa has been a theater in which UN peace Indian peacekeepers, yeah. and the record is actually quite mixed. I mean, human rights violations have been quite yeah. quite quite at a high level intensity sustained and these are units who are there who are literally running parts of Sierra Leone and they are you know it's almost for Indian officers military officers it's like okay one post posting in uh, SL another in Kashmir and you get different kind of experiences and they're literally treating it as active combat experience just under a blue helmet mm -hmm. has that also complicated India's uh, the perception among Africans uh, of India as actually not being that soft a state as many people would like to believe it to be. And that's interesting. It didn't come up in my experience in my interviews, but it does. I know that India uses that, you know, its uh, participation in these peace operations as one of, you know, just to make uh, arguments about its, its own grandstanding. You know, we have we are the large. What were they the largest? The second largest. Second largest. Now yeah, now after Pakistan. After Pakistan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> as in point of contention there, yeah, the second largest uh, contributors and, you know, we have been in Africa many, you know, conflicts, but so India uses it as, you know, as when it presents itself to its African partners, but uh, as far as, m from my experience, I didn't have any responses with regards to that, but I've, I didn't, wasn't in Sierra Leone, so I don't know. I know that, for instance, the but there was also, tra yeah, India, you mentioned this, India trains uh, local police forces, local, you know, armies, so there is the as positive aspect there as well that is sometimes brought about in these engagements. 
And if I could just add to that, it also suggests, though, that perceptions are quite um, fragile. Because you would have thought, say, Gandhian non-violence would be a pillar that no one could ever attack. Uh, but in this case, that's happened. And that means that things can change very quickly. Also, that there can be counter-narratives, counter-arguments, which one gains ascendancy, which one doesn't. Um, they can all change at different times. Thank you. Yeah, um, I just wanted to ask in terms of what do you think is the best tactic for other countries, sort of in Asia specifically? Because a number of sort of tried to, some have tried to sort of balance the two off against each other. Some have aligned closer to one or the other. Some, like Vietnam, for example, tried to be close to America. In terms of going forward, what's do you think is the best tactic to kind of navigate um, these two in the region? <laughs> well, first of all, it's quite useful that they can navigate. Some countries they can play them off against each other. You know, we got this offer last week, yeah. Beijing. Well, what are you going to offer this week? Um, I would suggest diversifying is probably quite a good strategy. Um, diplomatically, try not to get completely hemmed in. Um, I would say to a lot of smaller countries, say in Southeast Asia, don't appear to be categorically anti-China because you don't know what's going to happen in the future. Um, and try and keep try and keep some kind of flexibility to some degree. Also, underpinning all of this. Again, it's this perception of rise, but if you talk to certain elites in certain countries, they sometimes think that the countries will collapse. A lot of money is leaving China. I think it's highly unstable sometimes. Some elites in India sometimes think the same thing, that there could be some mass uprising to some degree. Um, and in that sense, it could be useful to have a more open diplomatic approach that you've got good relations with everybody, there are links and ties that are fruitful rather than just being tied with one, and if that one goes, then what happens? Sorry, sorry, sorry. there was one question on the back. Okay, thank you for your presentation, Chris. Thank you. Uh, it is a very current issue that uh, it, it can be better if you mentioned about Chinese climate policies, especially Trump's withdrawal from Paris Agreement. Do you think uh, China can fill this vacuum after Trump's withdrawal from China, uh, Paris Agreement? Mm -hmm. Uh, my feeling would be yes. That they've said that they're going to keep on with it. They understand um, existentially within China that it's a very big threat, as I mentioned before, say to the CCP, legitimacy of the CCP in different ways. Um, but also, they've got again, they've got these big levers. Um, the party can say, say th Three Gorges Dam is quite a good example, actually, compared with India. Three Gorges Dam, the party just said, we're going to have the Three Gorges Dam will move the two million people, it doesn't matter. The mod down in India took 30 years, 35 years, because the, the population can complain, they can uh, lobby, they can do it in different ways. So the party in China has said that they, they should have only clean coal now in power stations, and that they're going to try and get rid of all power stations, I think, by 2025, I think. Combine that with producing millions of solar panels, millions of turbines. Um, and my own viewpoint is that that could be quite useful. Quite often we say that China's disrupting global trade by, say, flooding markets with cheap products. Well, imagine they flooded cheap products with cheap solar arrays. I mean, I think that would revolutionise um, how we're able to deal with climate change. So I think from that point of view, it's, it's essential to domestic politics, and it's essential to them. So that's why they have to take some kind of lead. And they, sorry, they, they understand the trajectory. But it can only get worse and worse. If they keep going on the same measure, the more they produce, the more pollution, more unrest. And China is the first polluter all over the world. Yes. Yeah. And it's estimated, I think, by, tw by 2030 that China could pollute more than everybody else combined if they don't do enough. I was very, um, as I said, I um, found the argument of the power perception quite um, interesting. And I was wondering if if you can comment on Modi and his um, world tour, especially not this last year, but in 2016, I can't remember how many, or actually from getting to power in 2014 to 2016, I can't remember how many countries he visited. It's a lot. A lot, right? Yeah, more than 40, 50, or whatever, yeah, something around that uh, ballpoint. So did he, you know, many commented and said, oh, Modi, he just, you know, just like, he probably was more abroad rather than in Delhi. He took his traveling with lots of gusto. Mm -hmm. But he didn't change in terms of foreign policy. India's foreign policy hasn't really changed that mm -hmm. much. But in terms of power perception, I wonder, did he? 
have I quite think an it's impact. made India more visible. Yeah. It makes them look more active. Therefore, mm -hmm. India is more active. India is more involved. India is more in the room mm -hmm. than out of the room. And yeah. I, think, I think that these things matter. Yeah. Because you can think that states maybe have a brand. Right, exactly. Yeah. Modi's brand is on an active international state. Mm -hmm. I will be involved in every discussion. I will be prominent. Mm -hmm. um, I will be referred to. And the more that that happens, then that becomes normal. Percent, yeah. Yeah. And then if India isn't there, mm -hmm. other people say, well, where's India? India should be here, right. because that was a normalised feature. Mm -hmm. So I think that that can definitely be quite effective. In mm -hmm. terms of what then that directly translates into, I'm not too sure. Like I think in terms of Modi's impact upon Indian foreign policy, it seems more like an acceleration of certain aspects. So rather than... Um, Act East, it's, uh, it's rather than look East, it's Act East, for example. Mm -hmm. um, or he's more kind of virulently nationalist. India will definitely be a great power, or they'll be the biggest power of the 21st century. Mm. But that's more to do with, say, BJP pragmatism. Mm -hmm. and you can be a lot blunter right. and, and less right. idealistic mm -hmm. than other mm -hmm. um, previous parties. Mm -hmm. But I think the aim is, is to show that India's, India's there. Right. And India, India needs to be included. And I think that, that that's gaining credence anyway. It does, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I'd say that's the intention. Thanks. If there's no any more questions, I just want to thank again Chris for this wonderful presentation. Thank you very much. Um, good luck with the work. Thank and you. we should all do it for the library here if we haven't done it yet. For listening to CISD. You can check out our other seminar talks on SOAS Radio and on SoundCloud.